we know what we're told about Jesus is true? Wasn't the New Testament written hundreds of years after he lived? And how do we know it isn't just full of legends about a good teacher? And why did some books get included and others didn't? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. These questions and more will answer in our lesson today entitled, How We Got the New Testament, Part 1, History That Proves When It Was Written. Now here's why we're doing this lesson. Along with the others in this How We Got Our Bible series, I'm doing it to help you answer critics and your own internal doubts when questions like these come up. Where people ask, wasn't it written hundreds of years after the events recorded in them? And in the time in between the events and the recording of them, did myth and legends replace reality? And if that's the case, are the stories of the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus, are they just wishful thinking? Also, shouldn't the books that were left out of the New Testament, in other words, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and others, shouldn't they have been included also? Now, we're going to answer these questions actually in two parts. I did the first lesson as one whole part, and then when I was just going over it and I practiced taping it, it came out to over an hour, and I realized that is way too long. So I've broken it into two parts. Part one, I'm going to talk about the history of the documents, how they were, how they internally and externally show when they were written. This is so important. Everything depends on that. Once we date them correctly, we can then make all kinds of assumptions about them. This is essential foundational fact because we must establish it because if a historical account was written by eyewitnesses within a few years of the events that took place, it has much greater reliability than something written hundreds of years after an event. Now, that's what we're going to do in part one. That's this first lesson. Then in part two, we're going to look at the New Testament non-canonical writings. In other words, what are called the Gnostic quote-unquote Gospels and why they are not included in our Bibles. We'll see that in many ways, they're much more dangerous than the Old Testament non-canonical scriptures or the Apocrypha. We're going to talk about why that is and why they're not part of our Bibles today. But for that to to really make sense, we have to get solid on why we date the parts of the Bible that we do accept, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, it is a long and challenging lesson in two parts, but it's so worth it because it will give you such a confidence and peace and foundation in your life. So bear with me on it. There are additional notes. There's links to the podcast, the videos, charts, all kinds of additional materials on www.bible805.com. Now, let's get into it. First of all, I want to give you a very brief history of how we got the New Testament. The Christian church made a huge impact on the ancient world, and we're going to see some non-Christian quotes on it shortly. Now, it would only be natural that the leaders of this early movement who went out proclaiming that Jesus had lived, died, and rose again, that they would write to scattered churches that were forming all over the known world after Jesus' resurrection, and they did. They wrote letters to different churches. 
also we in addition to writing the letters the people who knew Jesus personally were passing away they were going up to heaven and people realized that they really needed to write down good biographies of Jesus. So eyewitnesses and people who knew eyewitnesses then also wrote biographies of Jesus. So we have these letters that were written really early and also the eyewitness accounts of people who knew Jesus. Now Luke describes this process. It's really interesting. In the book that um, bears his name, the Gospel of Luke, he starts it out by saying, Dear friend who loves God. In some translations it is translated most excellent Theophilus, but that means friend who loves God. But anyway, he goes on and here's how he says, um, here's how he's describing what he does. He says, several biographies of Christ have already been written using as their source material the reports circulating among us from the early disciples and other eyewitnesses. However, it occurred to me that it would be well to recheck all these accounts from first to last and after thorough investigation to pass this summary on to you to reassure you of the truth of all that you were taught. So this is just a great little summary. He says, you know, a lot of stuff's already been written, but I wanted to check it out. And Luke was a doctor, and he was an extremely precise, exacting historian. Uh, Scholars to this day just marvel at he knew exactly who was a ruler at a particular time, and what a particular street was named, and just all kinds of very detailed information that because he's so careful in the little details, we can really trust him in the big parts of his book. Now, similar processes to this, eyewitness accounts, checking things out, these took place in other books of the New Testament. Each one of them was written for a specific reason, either as Luke's was, as an eyewitness biography of Jesus, or as a letter to Christian churches. And most of the books, if you just read them, um, they all start by saying, you know, Paul writing this letter for such and such a reason, or this is to the Hebrews because of such and such a reason. The books are very clear on this is why they were being written. Now, After a period of time, people collected these letters, they made copies of them, both the letters and the biographies, and they were saved by different groups, and gradually they were recognized as scripture equivalent to the Old Testament and became part of our New Testament that we have in our Bibles today. Now we're going to talk about that exact process in our lesson on canonicity, so that'll be one away from this one. But... What I want to do before that is I want to really assure you of why the manuscripts that we have were even considered. I want to go into depth on how we can date them and verify the authenticity of them that forms the foundation for their inclusion in Holy Scripture. Now, first of all, we're going to establish when the books were written. Now, we're going to look at some key dates that we have verification for in secular history. One of the main ones is the death of the Apostle Paul. We know through many sources that he was put to death under Nero. Now, Nero... um, died in either 67 or 68 AD. So obviously Paul needed to be martyred 
before that time. Now his death, the Apostle Paul's death, is not mentioned in the book of Acts. So we know that the book of Acts was completed before 67 AD. Now hang in there with me on this because this is it's really a key pivotal thing there. Now, if Acts was completed before 67 AD, the book of Luke had to be written prior to it because Luke, who's the same author, starts out by saying in a former letter, so he wrote Luke before he wrote Acts, and it was also the last of what are called the synoptic gospels. Matthew and Mark were written before Luke, and so all of the gospels, we assume, by this method of dating were probably written sometime in the late 50s, early 60s. Now, obviously, all of Paul's letters had to be written before 67 AD. Now, we have other things that date them more clearly, but obviously they had to be written before then because that's when he died. So we know that all of these, for, from this dating, it would... Um, lead us to believe that all of the books were written before six, probably 67 AD or so. Now, a second key date is the destruction of Jerusalem in 90 AD. And it is very important that no New Testament book, and this includes the book of Revelation, makes many any mention of the destruction of the temple. Um, and of the destruction of Jerusalem overall. It always talks about different things being, well, uh, you know, Paul went to this certain place, or Jesus went here, or, you know, just all kinds of different things where they're talking about places as if they are still existing, still standing, nothing about the destruction of the temple. And this was an earth-shaking, world-shattering event. It totally changed the whole course of Jewish history, of the Jewish religion, because the temple was destroyed, and it has never been rebuilt. And so this was an incredibly important event, but no New Testament book even mentions it. And one would assume that something that monumental would have been mentioned. Current consensus among even secular, um, non-believing scholars is that, now they're not saying that because of this, that the New Testament's divinely inspired, but that the entire New Testament was probably written prior to 70 AD. Now, not only because of the things that I've talked to you, talked to you about, but because of just manuscript evidence itself, which we're now going to look at. Now, we have the dating from context. I've, I've talked about that, of, of the different things that were written. But do the manuscripts themselves tell us anything? Well, this is really interesting because we're going to talk about how you date, how scholars date manuscripts just by looking at them. They can say, oh, this probably came from the 200s or this was a medieval manuscript. And you might think, well, well how do they know? How did, how did they have any idea when something was written? Well, I want you to think about this, and this is something where the video will help, but I'll describe it to you, and, and you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. You yourself actually know how to evaluate manuscripts, even though you've probably never even thought about it. If I show you the picture of two newspapers, one 
comes from the 1800s. It's kind of uh, tan, darker paper. It's kind of aged, and it's little narrow columns and um, uh, kind of funny-looking advertisements and really a scrolly, fancy uh, title of it is called the Tombstone Epitaph, which is what this particular one is. I show you that, the picture of that newspaper, and then I show you a copy of USA Today. And actually, I shouldn't have told you when the first one was written, but if I just show you this this one that, again, very small print, tiny columns, um, what we would consider old-fashioned looking advertisements, all one color, just black on the plain paper, and then USA Today with very clear headlines, lots of color, etc. If I say, now, which one's from the 1800s and which one's from the 20th century, you'd go, well, that's pretty obvious. You don't even have to look on the paper to know just the way it's designed. And it's been like that throughout all of history. You don't need a graduate degree to tell you which is which. The paper, the type, whether they use color or not, the illustrations, all of those things make a big difference in when something was created. And we can tell just by looking at them. Biblical manuscripts, again, are no different, as the styles of writing and publication design are always changing. And because they're always changing, we can date when they were composed. In fact, you may, not, you may or may not be aware of this, but right now, um, we are in the midst of a huge shift in how things are written. And that shift is we are shifting away from cursive writing. If you're not around younger people, you may not realize this, but cursive writing is no longer taught in schools. And the consequence of it is cursive writing is very hard if not impossible, for some younger people to read. Now, we're not going to debate the right or wrong about it or whatever, but commentators are realizing that in a generation or so, people will not be able to read cursive writing. They will have to learn how to read it in the same way that people learn how to read Egyptian hieroglyphics or other things like that. That is simply what is going on. So one of the... Um, results of it is, should the Lord tarry, uh, future historians will be able to date handwritten documents based on if they're in cursive or not. And they will find maybe some that are kind of shifting, sort of half cursive, half not, uh, things sort of shifting during the 2020s. And so we're in the midst of that kind of a change now. Well, what are the differences in past manuscripts? Now, here are some of the criteria. Again, the video shows this, but I'll be able to describe it for those of you listening on the podcast, and I think in a way that'll make sense. First of all, what were they written on? Now, the very early manuscripts are all written on papyrus, and this was made by taking reeds that typically grew along the Nile or whatever, and they would uh, flatten them out and then sort of pound them together and smooth them off, and that made a surface they could write on. It is extremely easy from any photograph to tell what was written on papyrus because you see that sort of cross-hatching of the fibers of the paper. If something's written on papyrus, chances are it's from the 200s or earlier. All Again, all of the very early manuscripts were written on papyrus. So if you see that, chances are you know it's a very early document. Later on, they started 
um, writing on what's either called parchment or vellum. Now what that is, just the amount of work that it took to put that together was just huge. Um, vellum and parchment both, they are made from the skins of animals. So literally you would have to have hundreds of animals to would be slaughtered and their skins used to make parchment and vellum for some of the later manuscripts. This didn't start to be used from about 300 on. So if something's on parchment or vellum, you know that it's, it's probably a little bit later than the ones that were in papyrus. Now then, another giveaway is how the letters are constructed. Uncial, this is where the entire word is written entirely in capital letters. And this was used extensively from the first throughout uh, to the 8th century AD by Latin and Greek scribes. And if you look at any of the early manuscripts, you can see all the letters. You might not be able to read them, but you can see they're all the same size and um, just they're all the same size. That's the NCL writing. And it started developing into what we call minuscule, which is upper and lower case. That started developing in the 3rd century on, and it was very widely used from the 8th century on. You can see kind of the development of it, and I'll, I'll actually show you some manuscripts of that. But okay, you have the paper, you have the, how the letters are constructed, and then also the word spacing. The early manuscripts, all the words run together. And that's very hard for us to read, but I sort of think it's kind of different but similar to how those of us older people, we can read cursive where everything runs together and younger people can't. They go, how can you read that? Well, it's just what we've gotten used to. We look at some of these old manuscripts and we think, how in the world can they read that? Well, they could. <laughs> and uh, that's just how they wrote it back then. It helps us to date it. And then the illumination or illustration of the pages where you have all the fancy colorful designs, that was not used until approximately after 1000 to 1600 in the monasteries. Now the example that I'm showing for the video, it's very early as you can see because it's on papyrus obviously, it's uncial script, all the letters are the same size and they are all run together. And it actually is very early. This is an example of one of the manuscripts from a collection that was found in Egypt and is dated between 150 to 225 AD. Now we have some very early fragments of John's Gospel and they are very similar to what I was telling you how you can see that they're on papyrus and the uncial script and all the words run together. And it just, uh, again, looking at this, you can tell that it's a very, very early piece of writing. And so we've got, and we don't just have a few of them, we have thousands of these. Now, we not only have the fragments, the little fragments on papyrus and longer manuscripts on papyrus, but we also have three complete Bibles that came to us very early on. The first one that I'll talk about is what's called the Codex Sinaiticus. And this uh, scholars date from either 330 to 360. And it's both the Old and New Testament. Now, it wasn't discovered until Constantine Tischendorf, who was 
an archaeologist and biblical scholar, he was staying at St. Catherine's Monastery, and the monks were, this was at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the monks were bringing him uh, fuel to light the fire in his room to make it warm for him, and he noticed, when he sees them pull it out of the basket, he's going, no, 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 he realizes it's an early manuscript, and eventually they're able to assemble the whole thing, and it is the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, when I say the word codex, what I mean is that means a book as opposed to a scroll. And they started doing these pretty early. You can tell, though, what was a codex or what's on a scroll, because on the codex, the fragments is written on the back, and a scroll, it's not written on the back. Codexes, though, we have quite a few of them, even from very early on. This one from the early 300s is just an incredible find, and they just survived so much better. The pages were protected. They didn't curl and crack. Um, and two, by the time they started doing um, codices, which were in the early 1300s or so, a few of them a little bit earlier, but um, they made the pages were invariably out of leather. A few we have a few parchment codexes, but not very many. But again, they were animal skins, and then oftentimes they had these heavy wooden covers on the books, and that's why we have a lot of the early manuscripts. Paper didn't actually come to Europe until the 1400s, and the printing press, of course, followed in the 1440s. So for a very long time they uh, were using the uh, the uh, the parchment and the the leather the animal skins to write on another codex a complete bible the codex vaticanus uh, that came from between 300 to 350 is also another treasure that we have an interesting note when our bibles at the end of mark state that earlier manuscripts do not have what follows that's that section about handling snakes and drinking poison and different things that a lot of people go, you know, where where'd that come from? Um, when they say that these are not in the earliest manuscripts, two of them that they're referring to are the Codex Sinaiticus that I just showed you and the Codex Vaticanus, two of the earliest complete Bibles that we have, or nearly complete, there's a few fragments missing, but they do not have these passages in Mark, which has led, of course, many biblical scholars to say this, they that really doesn't belong in our Bibles, but that's what they're referring to when they talk about it. Then there's the Codex Alexandrinus. Now, this is from Alexandria. It's a little bit later, and if you're looking at the video, I want you to see something that's very interesting. They're starting to move towards the minuscule script in that having some letters larger than others, and you can see in this text, some are larger. They're starting uh, different whether it's verses, paragraphs, whatever, they're starting it. It looks like a paragraph break. They start it with a larger letter. It came from the library in Alexandria. Now, very interesting on the date here. It was given to King Charles, even though it comes from the 400s, it was rediscovered, given to King Charles of England at 1625. Now, here's the important point. He is the son of James, who was the, the king who oversaw the King James translation in 1611. Now, it's very interesting that uh, King James, he did not do his translation with access to some of the oldest 
Greek documents. And that's why when, <laughs> this is several lessons down the line, when I show you how we got our modern translations, a lot of people think the King James is just the most perfect, wonderful thing. Well, it's great. It's wonderful. It's a good translation, but it's not the best because they didn't have access to this and many other earlier, more complete manuscripts in the original languages that they're able to access now for translations. But later on, um, after this, those were the really earlier ones, they began to decorate or illuminate the Bible. The lettering may be the same, and again, if you're looking at the video, you can see how the lettering is um, oftentimes uh, in minuscule pretty much the same letters, not a whole lot of breaks. It's it's starting to come up, but they started decorating with uh, additional artwork. And I have some images here with the beautiful illuminated first letters from both the 1240s to 1260, and then an earlier one from 1079, where you can see how in the monasteries, they had literally the time and money to do this additional decoration. Now, just a bit of type graphic trivia from the early 1300s. Here is a manuscript and you can see that this one, uh, they use upper and lowercase letters. They have the, a lot of illustration on it, but what makes this interesting, and I'll describe it to you if you're not seeing the video, is you can see the markings underlying the design. Most of them have faded away in many of the manuscripts that we have, but here you can see them, how they would first rule a line down one side, a line down the other and then the lines for them to write on. Now what's interesting is the lines going down each side. They came up with this saying that if you could make your 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 words come out exactly to that line and you can see some of the places they did some they go over a little bit but they really tried to line it up exactly with that line. If you did it and made it fit perfectly the way it was supposed to be, if it came out right, they said that you justified your line. And of course, they got that term in the monasteries where we talk about being justified, being made right with God. That's what they used to describe making their their handwritten manuscripts come out right, come out correctly. And that is still the same term that we use today, justified type, where we talk about how type fits one, from one side of the column to the other side of the column. When it fits in perfectly, that is justified type. Now, let's have a little pop quiz. I'm going to describe something to you, and I want you, based on what you just learned, to tell me when this particular item that I'm showing you was created. If you were shown this, when would you date it? It's very smooth, vellum pages, lots of colored illustrations, upper and lower case letters. Obviously, it's medieval. It was written after 1000 AD because of the things that we just talked about. It's a section of the book of Matthew, something that was produced in one of the medieval monasteries. Now, what if you were shown this particular piece? It's obviously on papyrus. We can see the uh, the cross-hatching of the papers there. It's unseal letters where they're all the same size. The words are all joined together. So when would you date that? 
I think you would say that it's obviously very early, and it was. This piece comes from around 175 AD or somewhere around that. It's the end of the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of the Gospel of John, and it's uh, labeled P75. In other words, parchment 75 is, is how they number and label these sorts of things. Now, there are not just a few examples like this, but thousands of them. This chart, and it will be on the notes, many of you have seen versions of it. I, I did this so that I could make copies and give it to you. But as you can see, in the ancient world, the history that we don't doubt in any way, for example, the histories of Caesar and his Gaelic Wars, all the things we know about him, uh, It was his Gaelic Wars were written between 144 BC the earliest copies we have are from the 900s. Most of the older manuscripts, we have copies from the medieval, again, the medieval monasteries. That's where we have the copies. And that came, um, that was about a thousand year gap. We have 10 copies of his Gaelic Wars. And we think, historians think, well, that's just great. We don't doubt at all his history. And it's the same with other famous histories. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Herodotus, Plato, all of these sorts of things, we have very few copies of them and we have a huge time gap, but they're considered reliable. However, when we get to the New Testament, as we showed earlier, um, even the most liberal scholars say it was completed by around 100. Again, most today believe it was by 70 AD, but some of our earliest fragments come from less than 50 years or 50 years more or less from when they were first written. These are actual tangible things that we can touch. And from 200 on, we have many, many um, manuscripts, fragments, entire books from 300 on. All in all, we have five around one of the latest counts, and this keeps going up because they keep making discoveries. We have 5,366 either fragments or complete books in the original language, plus over 15,000 translated copies. Many more thousands of citations, quotations, etc. are in the writings of the early church fathers that quote and verify the New Testament writings. So, just on the manuscript conclusions, when critics say that the biblical accounts were not written until hundreds of years after the event, that has nothing to do with belief or whether they're inspired by God or not. Their comments on late authorship are simply ignorant as we have many manuscripts that conclusively date much earlier than when some of these other critics claim that they were written. Now, dating the manuscripts themselves is actually just a starting point because there's even more that fixes their creation as very early after the life of Jesus. And that is that in addition to dating the manuscripts themselves, which we can verify their content, also we can verify that by the writings of the ancient church fathers, who we know from many sources exactly when they lived. One example was Justin Martyr. He died in 60, 165 AD and he quoted the New Testament over 300 times in his writings, which of course he did quite a bit before that. So 
very early, we have one of the church fathers quoting extensively from books that obviously had to be written before then. And he's not the only one. There are many, many other church fathers that did the same. So again, when critics say that the New Testament was written hundreds of years after the life of Christ, they totally ignore that it was quoted long before they even say it was written. Now, not only that, but the basic facts and timing of the biblical history of Jesus are also verified by secular sources. Now, none of the following that I'm going to tell you about were believers. Their accounts, though, affirm the basic facts of the Christian faith, when they happened, and how they spread throughout the known world very early after the resurrection of Jesus. Tacitus was a Roman historian, and here's what he said. Christus, the founder of the Christian name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But this the pernicious superstition but the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. Suetonius, who lived from 69 to 130 A.D., approximately the same time, he said, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, in other words, Christ, Claudius expelled them from Rome. And Pliny the Younger, who was out in the provinces, and this shows how far Christianity had spread really early on. He lived from 63 to 113 AD. He wrote to the Emperor Trajan because he just didn't know what to do with the Christians in his province, where he said, I asked them directly if they were Christians. They used to gather on a stated day before dawn and sing to Christ as if he were a god. All the more I believed it necessary to find out what was the truth from two servant maids, which were called deaconesses, by means of torture. Nothing more did I find than a disgusting, fanatical superstition. So again, even though none of these were believers, they verify the basic facts and the timing of the Christian faith. Another one that is really interesting is Josephus and what's called the Testimonium Flavanium. And this is where in his History of the Jews, he quotes this about Jesus. Now, it's really funny because Although critics, uh, you know, they they take as um, his beliefs, his facts, much of what he writes, they say, well, this one had to be modified by um, by Christians. He couldn't have really said that. But regardless of whether he said all of it or not, the basic facts are accepted. The core is there. But here's what he said. Here is what has come down to us in this particular quote. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Another one that I find really interesting is a writer named Celsus, and he was a very prolific writer around 178 AD, again very early on when critics say that the New Testament wasn't even written yet, but but it was. Um, 
And uh, Celsus, he just, he hated Christians and he just had nothing good to say about them. But it's so interesting because he confirms people, dates, events. Now he attributes them to other reasons than the Bible does, but he confirms when they happened and that they took place. Here are some of the nasty things he says about Christians. He says about John the Baptist. He says, if anyone predicted to us that the Son of God was to visit mankind, he was one of our prophets and the prophet of our God. John, who baptized Jesus, was a Jew. And then on Jesus' miracles, he said, it was by means of sorcery that he was able to accomplish the wonders which he performed. Notice, little parentheses, my comment. He doesn't say they didn't happen. He just said it was sorcery. He says, let us believe that these cures or the resurrection or the feeding of a multitude with a few loaves, these are nothing more than tricks of jugglers. It is by the names of certain demons and by the use of incantations that the Christian, Christians appear to be possessed of miraculous power. And on the apostles, he said, Jesus gathered round him ten or eleven persons of notorious character, tax collectors, sailors, fishermen. He was deserted and delivered up by those who had been his associates, who had him for their teacher, and who believed he was the Savior and Son of the greatest God. And on the crucifixion, he says, Jesus accordingly exhibited after his death only the appearance of wounds received on the cross, and it was not in reality so wounded as he is described to have been. And I just, again, do you see what he's saying? He affirms much of the New Testament. He talks about this happened, but he ascribes it to magic or whatever, and while at the same time actually confirming that even in the beliefs of his Christianity's sharpest critics, that these things took place. Now some historical conclusions. Put aside for a moment just all the theological implications. And in a search for the historical Jesus, the biographies and other materials written about him, in other words, our New Testament, how solid is the picture based on thousands of manuscripts from the earliest days, eyewitness written accounts, basic facts confirmed by secular and antagonistic sources, and also confirmed by 2,000 years of church scholars. The conclusion is that the picture of Jesus as presented in the Bible is historically accurate. What an individual does with that factual reality is an entirely different issue. The fact is that a man named Jesus lived in Palestine when the New Testament said that he lived there. He did the miracles described, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he rose from the dead, and so powerfully affected his followers that they immediately spread the news that this was the promised Messiah, and forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation was possible through him. The documents that verify this are the best attested to in the history of all religions. We can trust that what they say happened when they say it happened. For someone who does not know Jesus as Savior, I challenge you to carefully consider him, the only man in human history who died and rose again. For believers in Jesus, be assured that your faith has a firm foundation to quiet your fears, to give you peace and hope. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and the other materials at www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. 
and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.